Well, the British Grand Prix is fast approaching, or should I say the first of two British Grand Prix, because of course we have the first Silverstone race and then the slightly questionably named 70th anniversary Grand Prix to follow. That's part of the tranche of uh, three races to come with Spain on the end of that. I'm joined by Gary Anderson. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and we're going to have a little bit of a look at some of the things that we will be watching at Silverstone, talk a bit about Ferrari organisation changes, and then of course the return of Imola to the uh, F1 calendar, which I'm sure Gary will have some interesting opinions on. But as always, we'll start off with the opening question, which comes from Aaron Bradbury. How many F1 cars that you've been involved with have you had the chance to drive? And if you haven't been able to drive the cars, how frustrating is it to spend such energy designing and perfecting them, only for a very select few drivers to get the opportunity? Uh, And which of your cars would you most like to do a lap of a circuit in, and which circuit would he choose? I should say before you answer that, that there were times when Jordan were quite generous with how many drivers they uh, they let drive their car. I think you had as many as six in uh, in 93. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, well, I think we had more than that if you, if you include me because I did drive the 93 car. So, um, the, you know, the question there is, is drive. Um, there's drive and drive, obviously. Um, I've toodled around in a few in my time. Um, way back, you know, in the early days, in the 70s, whenever I worked for um, for Brabham, we used to always try and do a bit of a shakedown, you know, and I'd maybe come to Silverstone or somewhere else and, and just go around for a few laps, make sure everything was working okay. So, I would normally drive then because I was a, a budding racing driver at that point in time. But, um, you know, driving it in anger is another thing. Uh, of the cars I designed, the 93 car, uh, I drove it mainly because I wanted to see if I could fit in it because Nick Faldo was going to drive it, and he was about my size. But it was interesting because I learned a lot about how the clutch and the gear change worked, actually just in a two or three laps of Silverstone. It was um, it was quite interesting because, you know, you listen to drivers telling you about stuff and how the gear change affects the car and one thing or another, but actually feeling it yourself gives you a much better um, impression of how it works. And also I drove the, the 97 car at the, the Goodwood hill climb thing. Um, Fisichella was supposed to drive it and then he couldn't come, so Eddie said to me, at, uh, we're in Montreal um, at the Canadian Grand Prix, and Eddie said to me, "You know, would you want to do it? I'm go- he's, he was going to drive the '91 car. I said, "You know, would you drive the '97 car?" And I thought, "Yes, please." So um, it was interesting. I said, "Well, if I, fit, if I can fit in it, okay," because you know, I'm a reasonably big guy. So that night, I had a bit of a try. It was a Saturday night, you know, after qualifying, I had a bit of a try in the car uh, to see if I could get in there. And basically, the the throttle stroke, the throttle pedal stroke, was was like a light switch. I couldn't quite believe it. I mean, I should have known about it because obviously I was involved with the car, but you know, as the drivers adjust stuff to suit them and one thing or another. Um, but it was just, it was so short. Um, so it came up because it was an electronic throttle, so you could just change the stroke of it and change the, the programming. Came up with a setup for it. And the next morning I said to Ralph Antifisichella, you know, look, I don't really understand how you drive this thing. This, this throttle pedal is far too short for me. Just in the warm up, can you give this a little try? Um, and they said, yeah, 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 yeah. And both of them loved it. So again, you know, interesting just sitting in the car and just pressing the throttle pedal. You think, oh, that's, you know, you couldn't control that at all. So, um, yeah, good, but it was good. I enjoyed it. But the only problem was that every time we went to go up the hill, it just lashed it down. So um, that was a wet, uh, a wet episode. But I, I enjoyed it. Nick Heidfeld was driving the McLaren and um, he was behind me. And, you know, uh, it was quite interesting because uh, I did give it a bit of welly to try and see what it was like. But it was so wet, it was just uh, very difficult. So driving is one thing, and then having the permission to drive it and maybe even put it in the hedge is another thing. I wouldn't mind driving one as long as I had the authority to try, but that just takes time. 
Yeah, the, you have to be careful at Goodwood because there is that wall that's uh, there to catch you out. It's quite quick up the top. Yeah, the, I, I remember the wall quite well. I, I was wet there, and I, I must admit, I did get a little bit of shape through there. But again, I was so impressed by the car because, you know, it corrected itself, which is really strange. Because I know I put a bit of Vauxhall lock-on, but, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't um, expecting to crash, but I wasn't expecting that to happen either. But just a little bit of Vauxhall lock-on, suddenly the car was straight again. You think, oh, got away with that. So it would be interesting to take it somewhere big, wide open spaces and give it some welly. And if I had a choice, uh, you know, that was a good car. I really enjoyed that car. Or the 94 um, Jordan was a really nice car. And I think both of them were, were very good to drive. 91 Jordan was also very good to drive. So any of those cars, if I could fit into them, I'd love to give it, give it some welly. Yeah, no, and I suppose, the, as you say, the value of just getting a slightly different perspective on something, like you always say about the importance of watching the cars on track and that kind of thing, just... That little bit of extra extra data and understanding, which I guess is very particularly easy for people to lose nowadays when everyone's got such sort of specialised jobs and such data-driven uh, jobs. Yeah, I mean, whenever you come back from watching out in the track and you say to some of the engineers or mechanics or whatever, you know, your car's bottoming really hard through there or the front wing input's hitting really hard or, you know, the car looks nervous on braking or something, you know, they, they, they say, oh, is it really, you know, it's... Um, it's a bit like this Ferrari thing that will come on to later on. Um, you know, they, they've had to put a performance department together to tell them that the performance isn't good enough. It's a bit strange. You know, don't don't they know that? It's, your performance is judged every two weeks. So anyway, we'll come on to that a bit later. But yeah, I mean, driving the car gives you that feeling. You're in the car. You know, whenever the drivers complain about the pedals not feeling right or something, if you've driven the car, you actually know what you know, you have an inside feeling of what they're talking about. So I think it's quite important. I think, you know, for, for a long time, you know, Adrian Newey will have a play with his cars. Um, and I think that's quite important. You know, you can't just be standing on the outside all the time, just taking this information. And obviously to drive at the level that drivers drive at, no. But just for the fundamentals, just try a practice start, you know, see what the clutch feels like you know do the gear change stuff just feel it all so you you've got a sort of inner feeling on it rather than just an engineering feeling yeah i guess so there's no there's no lack of uh team personnel with a little bit of racing experience as well it's it's more the team principals actually who've uh who've done a bit of racing rather than the, the those that there are some on the engineering side but uh people like christian horner franz toss toto wolf so this is why we should have a uh a, a team bosses race i think that'd be a very good idea yeah i mean i don't know why some somebody like mercedes doesn't supply some cars and have a team boss race every now and again, every two or three Grand Prix, especially with the situation we've got now, we're all staying in Europe. You could make it into a more attractive weekend. It doesn't have to just be team bosses. It could be technical directors or another nominee from the team. You know, there, there could be a way of pulling that, pulling it in and, and, and making it into something. They tried for a while to do things like this, but you know, with this situation that we've got right now and, and uh, multiple races at the same circuit and, you know, unknown championship, it might be an idea to, to pull it in right now and, and sort of try and raise the spectacle a little bit. Can you imagine how competitive and destructive it would become, though? That would be, uh, that, that, but that's good for uh, good for business, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, it, it could be judged if the stewards had a look at the driving and, and basically your Grand Prix driver loses a position on the grid or something for every time you, you as team, team principal, buying into somebody else. You know, you could put in a, a fairly tight discipline on it to, to control it. But, you know, I'm sure these guys, if the cars were decent enough, then I think they might go racing to try and prove who was, you know, quicker than the other one. Um, everybody's got an ego and everybody wants to show it at some point in time. And driving at the side of somebody does nothing for anybody. So uh, I think you have to respect it. Well, unfortunately, we won't be having any of that at uh, at Silverstone this weekend, but we have got uh, a couple of uh, 
British Grand Prix, as I said, coming up. Now, obviously, there's been so much talk about Mercedes domination. I have to say, Silverstone's not the circuit for that to change, really, isn't it? It is. Uh, you'd expect at the moment for it to be a Mercedes stronghold. It was very strong there last season, although Ferrari was uh, was pretty good there um, the year before, particularly. But yeah, this uh, this just seems like it's it's going to keep rolling, doesn't it? Certainly, unless Red Bull have uh, have made a big leap forward in their understanding in the past week or so, which seems unlikely. Yeah, I think the thing that's interesting about Mercedes, you say, you know, a couple of years ago Ferrari were strong, and um, it, it's one of these things that Mercedes seem to go along, learning where they're weak and fixing it. You know, so many teams just seem to have this blur of building a new car, and it's it's a new car and it has, you know, different characteristics and whatever, but Mercedes seem to react to their negatives and try to identify them and fix them, which is what I've always said. Unless you know what's wrong, you, you, you can't go better. Just pointless um, developing in the dark. I've done it myself. So I, I you know, I, I know it doesn't take you anywhere. You just keep on developing something and you can make the problem, you can fix the problem by accident, but you don't learn anything or you can make the problem worse. And, and that's the thing that, you know, I think Red Bull this year is showing. They've created themselves a problem, uh, an aerodynamic problem that we saw in testing was making the car very nervous to drive. Um, they sort of say, no, it was good in testing. Well, I thought the car was good in testing, but I thought it was very nervous to drive. Um, so their developments from that point in time of being a good car, but quite nervous to drive and a lot of spins, has made the car not quite as good a car and more nervous to drive. So they're obviously, you know, they've obviously improved the bad bit. No, not improved it, actually made it worse because they've made it work harder. So it's now become a dramatic problem as opposed to a rectification. And sometimes you have to step back a little bit and, and sort of see where you've gone, what you've done and what you've done, come from um, and, and try and identify the real problem. And I think that's where Mercedes are very good. They don't try and reinvent the wheel every year. What they do is they address it. Like last year, they had a problem in Austria with cooling, and they spent a lot of their time this year getting the cooling better, both from the power unit and from the, the chassis, a better efficient cooling package. Um, and as two years ago at Silverstone, they weren't really the dominant force. Ferrari were very strong, but they've identified that and they've made the car better in that front, whereas Ferrari have just gone worse again. So it's a it's just a simple situation where I think as a Formula One team you need to be very disciplined and I think Mercedes are very disciplined they address the problems and they don't just make the car a different car in a blur that and hope that it goes faster so uh, I think Silverstone will be a Mercedes domination unfortunately um, I hope not I hope Red Bull do fix it over the weekend but uh, I don't quite see it perhaps Racing Point can, can give them a bit of a hard time but uh, you know, as a year-old Mercedes, whether we like it or not, you know, the, the philosophy behind it's a year-old Mercedes. And I'm sure Mercedes have moved forward. Um, with lots of talk about, yeah, the, the, the racing point is quicker in some corners uh, than the Mercedes. And I'm sure that's true. But it's, you know, it's a lap that counts. It's not one corner. So um, I still think Mercedes will have that that edge. What do you make of racing points so far? Because one of the things that surprised me, they've got this really quick car. But unusually for that team, they've not really made the best of it. They've had a few little strategy calls. You know, Austria won when they didn't bring Perez in. was a bit of a mistake. Then they, they got a little bit confused when he had that front wing damage and almost called him into the pits, but he disregarded it and was able to salvage the position. 
Stroll's strategy at Hungary, I'm not convinced, was the most logical. Just it just seems they're not. I, I don't know whether it's a question of the team. The expectations are so high, and they're they're running at the front, so they're out of their comfort zone or something. But normally, you expect that team to be so rock solid. Do you think it's just almost that they've got a little bit unsettled, perhaps, by having such a good car that can get podiums, or do you think it's just one of those things? It's only three races; anyone can get a few things wrong. Uh, yeah, I think as a bit of only three races, but whenever you consider that the, you know, the car this year is a sort of completely different philosophy aerodynamically, it, it works differently. Um, it, it probably is more consistent for the driver. I think that's where they get their lap time out of it. Yes, it's got good downforce and all that sort of stuff, but it's the consistency that gives the driver confidence to push. Um, and I think the team are still learning a bit about that and how the car responds and how the car works. So I, I didn't, I wouldn't have expected them just to be bash, bish, bash, bosh, you know, every race meeting just doing the same thing and being right up there because they're they're having to learn about the car and how how to adjust the car, how to make get the better the better performance out of it. And you know, their old car, rightly or wrongly, that a couple of years ago was very good on its tires through the race, um, and that's what that that's what they learned about that concept. Learn taught them how to run the car. With these with these tires on it and get the the consistency out of it and as you know many people have said Perez is most more consistent on the tires than, than anybody else on the grid. Now he probably can drive the car a bit differently. He can drive the car you know more aggressively or whatever because it's not going to be the same. He, you know he needs to try and exploit the package he's got now to get the best out of it. And I think he might still be guilty of driving the car that he had before in a way that you know how he gets the performance out of it. He might be able to just not worry so much about the traction and all that sort of stuff. It's a bit like whenever traction control was was allowed. You know, the old drivers, the guys who were very good at controlling the traction on the car, just couldn't cope with the, the traction control because it took away one of their tools. And it might be a case of that with Perez as well. He might just have to learn again about driving a, a different package. And then the team can react to that driving of a different package. So I think give them a little bit of time, give them a few more races to get on top of it. It's actually quite an interesting point you make with Perez because you can see he's still doing some of the little tricks and things he does uh, to protect the tyres. It's not massive line changes or anything, but there's just subtle differences you can see he's uh, used for a long time. So, yeah, I, I do wonder if you might well be right on that, actually, that he needs to perhaps learn to work with a, a slightly better uh, better car. But, but Silverstone overall is an interesting track now, isn't it? Because it's it's sort of super fast, but almost the cars have got so good now that... It's almost too fast, isn't it? With some of the corners have become less of an event than they perhaps should be, which is is bizarre, really. But it, it's it's actually gone from being it was a very much a downforce circuit not so many years ago. But it, it's actually become a lower downforce circuit because of that, which is just tells you how much Formula One cars have advanced in recent years. Well, they've advanced dramatically. I mean, you know, again, the bigger tires, everything adds to grip level. It's the black bit of rubber on the ground that that, that transmits the forces. So putting bigger tires on it has, has given them X grip. Um, the wider front wing, the wider bodywork, all that sort of stuff ends up. You can generate more downforce. So, you know, corners that were nearly flat, which, you know, let's say Cops used to be quite a good corner, and, that you know, it was flat, flat nearly, on new tyres, you might just kiss the brake pedal a little bit going into it, but you keep the throttle down. Um, so that that becomes now, a, you know, you go around there one hand quite easily. I mean, not if you get it wrong, but obviously it's it's now become a flat-out corner. So the decisions are taken away from the driver as far as that's concerned. There's quite a few 
through into the Beckett's complex. You know, again, that, that used to be you go in flat out and you're just changing down gears as you go through the corners. Now it's so much quicker through there and so much more grip. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, a, it's, it's now a, a compromised circuit, downforce-wise, you know, which is good because it can, it can highlight differences in cars. But it's, um, as you say, I think it's a bit too easy. Some of the corners are a bit too easy. Some of the, the little complexes, you know, coming down into um, where the BRDC grandstand is, Ed, where you and I used to watch a bit at, um, you know, it's quite interesting to see the braking and the turning and the entry speed because, you know, you go up there for your first time of a weekend and you stand there. If you were to go up there for the first time and qualifying and stand there and watch somebody like Lewis Hamilton come down into there, the turn-in speed is just phenomenal. You just want no, no way this is going to make it, but it does. So yeah, the, the corner and speed is 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 fantastic, but it's the same for them all. So it's just a step, it's just a step forward. They're all relative to each other. That's the thing about it. You know, the, your performance on a given weekend at a given track anywhere in the world is only about the performance of others. And if you have got on top of it all, and you're the best, then you're the best. It's, it's not it's not about really anything you've done. It's about what everybody else has done. And that's what Ferrari are finding out. Again, you know, Mercedes have done a better job. Red Bull are finding out that Mercedes have done a better job. So they just need to focus on it and try and get another two weekends at Silverstone of learning. And it is good for this situation, I think, they're having two races because you do see little differences from weekend to weekend. Um, it'd be interesting to see with the different tyres whether there's a big change. I don't see it. I think it'll be invisible. The lap time might be three or four tenths different, uh, but I think it'll be overall invisible to changing the tyres. There's no car out there now, I think, that just doesn't respond to a given tyre compound. They're all they're all so close to each other, the tyres, it, it doesn't really matter. So, But it is Silverstone, it is the home of the British Grand Prix, and it'll be great to see it. Well, let's talk now about a team that isn't going to be uh, in the fight for victory at Silverstone, Ferrari. Uh, they've had this little reorganisation. They've created that performance department that you mentioned under uh, Aero Chief Enrico Cardile. Uh, Rory Byrne, they've uh, mentioned as having some input. They they do quite often throw Rory Byrne's name in there whenever things are going badly. I'm, I'm not sure how much he actually does. Obviously, he's on their payroll as a consultant. He does, I believe, still has an office uh, at Marinello, but I don't think he's there an enormous amount. So what what do you make of uh, of this whole thing because it's never good when you start seeing restructurings and reorganizations in teams and this probably picks up on what we were talking about not so long ago about the pressure on Mattia Bonotto and perhaps it even reflects that maybe you weren't too far of the mark wide of the mark when uh, you said that the making Bonotto team principal as well as retaining some technical responsibility was not perhaps the cleverest idea yeah I mean I still stick by that to be honest because um what I know of Matteo you know he was he was a good, solid um, engineer. Everything that he seemed to be put in charge of or work with, engineering-wise, he has a deep understanding, a deep, a deep mindset to understand it and try and rectify it. And he can't do that now, you know. Ferrari have put him in a position where the team principal job takes first priority because it does, because it's, you know, there's more stuff going on team principal-wise uh, that you have to react to more or less immediately than there is in, in the technical side. Um, because you've got a lot of people on the technical side, and you've, you've just got to keep on top of it and keep it directed correctly if you're the technical director. Keep it going in the right direction. You know, that is a full-time job, and I, so I think separating that, separating them is the best thing they can do. Um, 
but I think they're bringing, they might be changing in the wrong direction, in my opinion. You know, they're, they're changing the technical department. They need to bring in somebody that will take on the responsibility of the team principal. A harder poke, probably. Um, somebody who's not going to be loved because the driver as a team, the whole lot, needs a discipline. Um, it needs to be told that this is where you are. You know, you do, if, you, if you yourself can't look at the timesheets and say, you know, we're not good enough, we're going to have to do something here, um, then I don't know what performance department will do. You can move people around, and that's really what they've done. You know, I think Rory's always been able to be a consultant for them. They use them a bit more, maybe. Um, but it's one of those sort of situations where, you know, the group of people that's achieving it is, no, is not one person. It's a group of people that's trying to achieve the success. I think this is a, a little bit of a, a change for change's sake, personally, um, for the fact that, you know, they, they have had to detune their engine or they've been forced to run their engine at a different level um, because of the regulation change or because of what the FIA and, and Ferrari found. Now, what that what that really was, we don't know, which is really sort of disconcerting to a lot of people because, you know, how many secrets are there out there, really? So I think this is a little bit of a smokescreen. The people are all more or less the same people. They're just being named now, and they are, you know, as said, these people are here. And this is a performance group. Well, the performance group is, is those people anyway right now. I, I, f I think I go back quite a long time, whenever Honda were involved, um, before the you know the Ross Braun thing and then the Mercedes thing and all that stuff, when BAR were it's at uh, Brackley, um, and I was doing a bit with Reynard and they asked me to come in one day to have a bit of a consultation with them, I suppose you might call it. Um, and the problem was that the left and right hand were just blaming each other. Nobody was accepting it and, and buying into the fact that overall it's a package that has to perform, and overall if you work together. You know, it's not the mechanical guy's fault. It's not the aerodynamics' fault. You just need to all work together, put all your your eggs in the basket, you know, put all your ideas on the table and, and try and decipher it and pick out the best idea. And I think Ferrari are, are lacking that at the minute. They don't they don't have a you know they don't have a good enough table to put all these ideas on or the people, and they need to change that a little bit. Yeah, it's worth maybe talking about Roy Byrne a little more because obviously he's someone you know fantastic reputation and rightly so. He's perhaps not talked about enough as a great designer. But he did retire from Formula One at the end of 2006. He's 76. He's basically retired or semi-retired. So he's probably not in a dissimilar situation to uh, to you, actually, in, in, in many ways. But what, do you actually think there's anything someone like that can really do? What Can they can they sort of wander in and throw in ideas? Or just is there a benefit of having a, a, a knowledgeable outsider having a look? or is he, Or will he just be a little bit too disconnected because he has been mentioned before when they were struggling in 2012 he was doing a bit they talked about him having some input on the 2014 uh new car projects so he'll have some current understanding but it's i just wonder whether it's a little bit of a press stunt and you say a name like that and i think oh well, there's somebody really really serious what what can he actually do i think the thing you can do is bring reality back to it uh, again it's a, it's the same old deal you know you can get into dreamland with a Formula One car, but the end result is there's a, a human being driving it who needs confidence, and there's four tires connecting it to the ground. Now, I don't think Rory Byrne can come in and say, right, okay, you've only got, you know, 1,500 kilograms of downforce, and you should have 1,750 kilograms of downforce or something like that. But what he can come in and look at and do is look at data and, and see, because 
you know, see that how the consistency of the aerodynamic forces are on the car, see how they simulate it. There's a lot of stuff that are, is just the same as before. You know, I couldn't go into a Formula One team and say, look, if you stick this little vertical gizmo on this bit part of the bridge boards here, you're going to double your downforce. There's no way, and there's no way Rory can do that either. But what you can do is bring a practical side to it all to try and make sure that what they have is a drivable solution because a drivable solution today is the same as a drivable solution when Rory was fully involved with it. You know, it, it's still down to that human element having confidence to drive the car and getting the best grip out of what you've got that you can. So you can't just abuse someone. I mean, if the car's a bit pitch sensitive, for example, aerodynamically, the first thing you do is run, you know, solid at one end type thing is to try and reduce the pitch sensitivity. But that won't make you go quicker. It might reduce the pitch sensitivity a little bit, but it'll just create another problem somewhere. So there's a basic set of parameters that I think carry through life in Formula One and in motorsport in general. And you, you can't, you know, just deviate completely away from it. So somebody with practical experience and a lot of in-depth experience like Rory could just bring them in that little bit of a, a control strategy, a level that they have to try and achieve. And it's up to then the young guys, the clever guys, to go off and try and achieve that. But it's so easy to lose your way because you, you think you've got the best thing in the world and sometimes you need somebody to tell you you haven't. And, and Rory can probably help them with that because, he's, you know, as you say, he has a lot of experience. He has a lot of experience with Ferrari, which is you know, very important as well because they don't, like, they don't like to be bringing in outsiders. And I don't think they classify Rory as an outsider now. He's been there for, you know, been involved with them for many, many years. I think it'll just be a little bit of advice, a little bit of grounding, maybe a bit like Patrick Head did last year with, um, with Williams to bring them in and sort of try and give them that platform to work from again. Because once you lose that platform, you know, sometimes it's very hard to pull it back again. And, and you know, you need somebody with experience to let these younger guys actually look up to or accept or believe in a little bit. So, yeah, I think Rory can help them. Although I guess there's a reasonable chance he might just point at the uh, the loud, heavy bit behind the driver and say that's your problem because the the engine is the is clearly the, the main difficulty they've got, and this doesn't really impact because the engine department remains the same. So that's going to be the uh, the struggle for them. So yeah, interesting to see how how that goes. Uh, we should also talk a little bit about Imola, I think, because that's coming back onto the F1 calendar first time since 2006. Obviously, that's a place you know uh, very well. Um, it's great to have a track like that back, back, isn't it? I'm not sure it'd be brilliant for overtaking, but it's just a a proper driver's track, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's got a bit of everything, to be honest. Um, obviously, since the, the Senna incident um, in 1994, it's changed quite a bit. You know, the fast corners have sort of gone now, and they're, they're still pretty fast, but there's lots more chicanes in there. It's, that way, it's a bit like Monza, in a way. Um, but it does, you know, it needs a bit of everything from the car. The topography of the track is really good. You know, the acceleration uphill from the, the toss of hairpin, um, all that blind section up through there. Um, it, it just, as you say, it has a mix of everything. The last two variant to one variant to two, I think they're called, the last two left-handers, you know, downhill into them. So it always, always raises problems with the car whenever you've got downhill braking. Um, so yeah, it's it's a bit of a mix of everything. It is nice to see these, some of these older tracks, which you know it doesn't have massive runoff areas and stuff like that as well. So you you know you can't afford to abuse it. It's it's, it's one of these tracks where you just need to you need to respect it. I suppose the best way of putting it. Um, but it is good. You know that area is so so enthusiastic about motorsport. Um, it's incredible. So I'm I'm really pleased to see it back in the, on the on the calendar. To be honest, and I, I think there, you know, it is 
it is going to be a car a car stander outer as well. I don't think you get a lucky break at Imola. The car that's best will will be the car that's that's right at the front, and uh, I think we all know what that is really. Um, but at the moment, at least, yeah, it's very likely to still be the case uh, by the time we get to Imola. Although that won't be till I think first of November is the race. It's going to be interesting weather wise because I mean, last time I was at Imola was in mid-November for the Lamborghini World Finals, and uh, there was definitely a day. I think the day directly before the meeting started, the the track was covered in snow. So that was a few weeks later. But it's going to be interesting with going there and Nurburgring late in in the in the European. Well, I was going to say late in the European summer, but it's not in the European summer, is it? It's uh, advancing towards winter. Yeah, I mean that that is going to be then one of the inter- most interesting facts from this year is running later in the year um, at these tracks. I mean, it's going to bring in um, weather potential weather changes. You know. Uh, dramatic changes at that it's not just going to be you know it was 40 degrees one day and it's only 35 today it could be you know as you say snowing one day i've been at Nuremberg whenever the formula 3 event was cancelled because of snow um so you know it, it is it is tricky um but it's tricky for everybody so that's it's nice to see that because you could see a small team if they you know take the bull by the horns you could see a small team pull in a good result because um you know it is about making the right decisions at the right time we we seem to have got to this sort of corporate thing where nobody makes those decisions anymore. They all follow the follow the leader as such. And um I think these winter or autumn races will give an opportunity for some of them to scratch their head a little bit and, and rethink how they how they plan pit stops and, and how they plan the strategy. And hopefully somebody will um, outwit somebody else. And how about tracks like the Nürburgring and obviously Algarve's been added as well. I'm not sure whether you've ever worked at Algarve to see that track opened late 2008 so I presume you won't have had the chance to work there but Nürburgring obviously you've got some fond memories of uh, of winning there with Stuart. Yeah I mean it's, it's a good track as well it's, it's just sad to see these normal tracks you know Nürburgring um, it, it has a name you know it's been around for a long long time um, it's just one of these sort of situations where it, it it should be on the calendar because it, there is traditional circuits there is Monza there is Monaco there is Silverstone you know, there is a Nuremberg These races should be without doubt um, on the Formula 1 calendar. It's, again, it's going to be um, a tricky time time of the year there. Um, and again, it will give opportunity to smaller teams to, to have a bit of a go. So I hope the, the opportunity arises. I hope we get mixed up races, not because they're, they're mixed up um, intentionally, but because they're mixed up because weather plays a big part in it and conditions play a big part in it. So that would make this season and is something quite spectacular if we could see a bit more of a mess because rain changing weather conditions and that always brings in a little bit of a mess and it means that the people that you know the, the guys that stand up to be counted will can reap the dividend from that because you know you need to make decisions better than somebody else yeah and always good to go to circuits that are less familiar i mean even nurburgring they've not been to for a few years see algarve Tricky circuit, very undulating. Imola, not been since 2006. And uh, Mugello, I guess, is the other one as well that's been added for a while. We um, we went there uh, to test um, 1991, actually. We took the Jordan there. I, I went there for the, I think it was 2012. There was a Formula 1 test. Um, but yeah, I think that's the only times I've been there. But uh, it, is a, it is a great circuit. I mean, it's, it's fast. Um, it has some lovely big fast corners, big sweeping corners. Again, not the greatest for overtaking, I wouldn't think, because you know to follow somebody through one of those fast corners is going to be pretty, pretty difficult. Um, but it is a great circuit. Again, it's a you know a real, a real 
racer's circuit, I suppose you might call it, a real driver's circuit. And um, the car has to respond well there because the straight's so long. You know, you have to run lower down force. And so then through the corners, you you know, you're scrabbling for grip a little bit. So I'm looking forward to it. It's all different stuff. You know, it's all different circuits coming up, which is is really making it. Instead of the old plan of we'll go here, we'll go here, we'll go here, the same as last year. Everybody's got the data from last year. Everybody's got all the information. What they need to do is go to one of these races like Magello or, or the Algarve that's new and not allow the team's access to their data. You know, actually look out on the, on the, 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 um, the recorded data recording system, just lock it out until Sunday night. Say, right, okay, we're having this race meeting here. No data. It's up to you, driver, engineer, talk together, sort out what the car's doing, and just, just allow the uh, the reliability or safety channels to be to be uh, looked at. I think that would change the whole the whole situation quite a dramatic amount. Yeah, that's always struck me as a good idea. I guess we'll see a fractional step towards that with Imola just being a two-day meeting. We don't know exactly what the weekend structure is going to be there. It may well be that they just pack all the running into two days because uh, obviously there isn't quite so much to fit in on that weekend. But at least we are seeing some tiny flexibility on the weekend structure because that's always a problem, isn't it? F1 became very homogenised, which is all well and good, but it means teams are very much in a comfort zone normally. Well, it was all set up because of TV. You know, it had to sort of follow some sort of routine. Um, but now there's an opportunity to change that. And the problem is that really all these tracks, they're so well mapped from GPS data that, you know, the teams then have all that stuff to go and do their simulation. So they should go to a track in a reasonable condition, even though as a, a new track, they should go there in a, with a reasonable setup on the car. There's then compromises that come into it. That you, you, you know, you do get the track co- grip coefficient and stuff from Pirelli, but at the end of the day, you know, it's never the same as, as the, the real track. So I think you can't stop all that happening. That's just technology. It's moved on. So the only thing you can do is is try to put it into the driver and the engineer's hands once you get there and say, right, okay, you can all come here in the same, the same level. As your simulation tools are good, then you're coming here at the same level. But from here on in, it's going to be all down to you having a chat with your man and your, and your driver coming in and giving you the information as what the car's doing and you reacting to it now. You know, do you fix the understeer with a softer front anti-roll bar or do you put more front wing on it or do you lower the front ride height? Do you stiffen the rear up? You know, whatever. You have to make those decisions. You just don't go and look at all the data and say, you know, the car's rolling now a tenth of a degree more than it should do so we can stiffen up the, the rear bar or whatever to reduce the understeer. So, you know, let sometime have a weekend and give it a shot just making the driver need to have experience again and let's just see how good some of the new guys are at actually feeling the car and reporting the data back to the, to the engineers yeah, it's almost become a not an entirely lost art but largely so and of course that's another point of difference isn't it that's why you start getting bigger gaps between drivers uh, which obviously is interesting to see when you when you have uh, less of a two by two grid feel uh, well, thanks very much, Gary. I think we've uh, we've covered that all very well. Of course, you can read more from Gary on the race website. Uh, do subscribe, of course, to the Gary Anderson F1 Show podcast if you haven't already. And check out our The Race F1 podcast as well, where we uh, regularly delve into goings on in Formula One. We'll be back next week after the first of two British Grand Prix with, I'm sure, plenty of insight from Gary. And then we'll do it all again the, the following week with more Silverstone insights. So thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.